Hey, everybody. This is Andy. And Pete. We're here. We Just a quick message, because what you're about to listen to is not a regular episode for the public. It's actually one of our member bonus episodes that uh, that we release to members. Yeah, that's what, that's what we do. That's right. We sure this, do, Andy. This is our May member bonus episode. Uh, we ask our members... What series should we dip back into? And and they voted on uh, Great Car Chases. And then of the movies we provided, uh, they voted on the Blues Brothers. So we're going to be doing an episode on the Blues Brothers. And, uh, you know, this is uh, the sort of thing that you get if you become a member. Pete, how can people find out about membership? You know, if you head over to just thenextreel.com, it'll take you to our, our landing page over at truestory.fm. And you can just click the button that says, I want to be a member. And there are a couple of options for you. And once you sign up, once you uh, can start contributing to the show, you get access to all kinds of great, uh, all of our member-only channels in our Discord server. You get your own access to the member feed so that you get shows like this and the special versions of each episode that we do that include a lot of other BS at the beginning and the end. <laughs> it's um, kind of a little more unedited opens. A little bit unedited uh, opens, and uh, but we we leave all that stuff where we're talking to you and at you, special member, and that's what you're going to get with the member feed. And uh, we love doing it, and we hope you want to join up. That's right, because we have Discord channels where the members can listen in uh, on our live stream and can you know send us notes through Discord, and so we will you know call them out at times too. So I mean, all of that. Plus, yeah. we do a flick chart re ranking every month. We do. Um, the retake episodes at the end of each uh, series. So all sorts of stuff that members get. And sometimes even stickers in the mail show up. So They do. They do. We could say with enthusiasm that sometimes they get stickers. I would also <laughs> like to call out special members. Nick would like to know, would like to see if Blues Brothers 2000 will get a mention. Check. And Ray <laughs> likes pineapple on pizza, just like me. So there's two. There's two call outs. There it is. So mm -hmm. uh, so consider becoming a member. We'd appreciate it. Um, and we think that there's a lot of great content for you. And you get all the back member content, too. I mean, there's so much stuff that is out there. I mean, I think this past year we released nearly as many member bonus episodes as we did regular episodes. So there's a lot of content to dig into. Good Lord, what are we doing with our lives? <laughs> all right. Well, let's kick this episode off. And uh, But anyway, consider uh, becoming a member. We'd appreciate it. And uh, with that, here's the episode. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The Blues Brothers is over. I hate Illinois Nazis. You'd better get bright, pal. We got a show to do. Then we got to figure out some way to collect that gate money. Get it to the Cook County Assessor's Office as soon as they open in the morning. Joliet, Jake, and Elwood Blues. Two men with a mission, and only 11 days. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves. Our Lady of Plastic Acceleration, don't fail me now. Well, me and the Lord, we got an understanding. We're on a mission from God. Yeah, how do you pick a single line from the Blues Brothers, Andy? That's one of the biggest challenges with this movie is it is a movie of um, just so many quotable lines. I find myself oh. probably more often than makes sense given the context of conversations, but saying orange whip, orange whip, three orange, orange whip, whips, orange whip, three orange whips. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep. Delightful candy line. I this is the bigger problem that sometimes I'm quoting lines from the movie that I have forgotten were in this movie. Do you oh. do that? Like, I just have been quoting them so long, they start to feel like me. Like, for example, yeah, a lot of space in this mall. 
<laughs> yeah. Yes, you forget. You forget. It just becomes a part of you. Yeah. And then you don't even realize it until you watch it again. You're like, oh, <laughs> this is why I say that so often. This is it. I mean, you, this was it. So my first child was a, uh, a girl child, my daughter. <laughs> and, and every time... There was, I had this thing every time my, my wife and I, we would hand off the child, right? We would, she would be like holding the child and then she'd hand it to me and I would say, how much for the little girl? And I, <laughs> I like only realized, oh, that was planted in my psyche by the Blues Brothers. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, we're going to uh, jump into this conversation. Oh, we should say this. Uh, this is a member bonus episode. This is a um, an addition to our Great Car Chases series. It very easily could also uh, fall into the Couples on the Run series. Couples on the Run. Yeah. Uh, although we've done that more recently. So Great Car Chases, we haven't. And uh, the members voted on the Blues Brothers. So here we are talking about uh, Joliet Jake and Elwood Blues in this movie. Uh, when this movie was released, it was rated R. Mostly for the nine f bombs said throughout the film, um, you know it's it's a comedy. Most of the stuff's not too bad, even the the sexual jokes and stuff. It's uh, it's pretty much just a profanity rating. Uh, now I know you. I, I did not finish. You recommended to me that I listen to these episodes of this podcast, and I I didn't listen to all of them because it just felt like a lot of work. Because I know you already did. So. <laughs> I feel like you need to do the setup of of Landis. For Are you thing. saying you kind of you kind of uh, collapsed on? <laughs> it's, yeah. There there were two episodes. Uh, there's a podcast called Behind the Bastards, where they look at uh, bastards throughout history and kind of talk about <laughs> different elements of them. And they did a two part episode on John Landis, uh, specifically talking about the uh, making of the Twilight Zone movie. Or you should say the Twilight Zone, the movie, uh, and the horrible, horrible disaster that uh, that happened on the set of that, um, largely because of John Landis uh, on his part of the film. Um, it's it's a tragedy, and um, I, there's a book. I'm trying to remember what the um, the book is called that kind of details it. Um, I don't remember. There was there was a book that uh, somebody released that uh, is talking about the kind of walking through that entire incident and everything that happened there. And I think that you really get a sense of just how disrespectful John Landis was of the cast and crew, all for the sake of getting the big shot. I mean, his story is the one about the Vietnam or the guy who's just a terrible racist. And, um, you know, he's brought back through moments in history where he's, you know, having to live as one of the people who is persecuted. And one of the scenes is, you know, he's, he's, a uh, um, goes back to Vietnam and has to, uh, save two Vietnamese children from the attacking American helicopter. And, um, yeah, I mean, Landis had these explosions going off next to the helicopter late, uh, late at night. He had children working on set illegally <laughs> that, um, you know, had no paperwork or anything to actually be there. And um, one of these explosions that he had go off next to the helicopter went a little too close and uh, damaged the rotors, I guess. And the helicopter crashed, uh, killed both children, killed Vic Morrow, the actor in the scene, injured everybody on the helicopter, uh, you know, and and. You know, Landis was able to kind of continue his career. I mean, sure, he had to go through some legal proceedings and everything, but it didn't end up really turning into much. So, uh, yeah, um, you look at kind of the continuation of his career, and it's it becomes pretty tragic that that uh, you know, I think nowadays, like with ever since Me Too and stuff, I think that there would have been a lot more uh, discussion about this, and and uh, you know prosecution and everything that likely would have ended his career rather than him being in a place where he was able to continue it. And I think that's uh, something that's shifted with society is that, you know, these are the sorts of things that um, directors could get away with back then that um, unfortunately still ended up with three people's uh, deaths and, uh, you know, and he was able to continue his career. So, wow. Yeah, it's just one of those things. I mean, it happens after the Blues Brothers, but, you know, we've done a few John Landis uh, films, Coming to America, 
uh, the Three Amigos, both of which happened afterward. And I feel like we never really talked about it. So I feel like, you know, we should actually mention that there is some horrific stuff to think about and discuss when it comes to uh, John Landis and uh, him as a, a, you know, filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. Has that ever changed uh, your take on, you know, hanging with Landis's films? Obviously not, as we're talking about the Blues Brothers. Well, I, I think the the thing that happens in these things is, um, I mean, I think this is true of so many artists throughout history. It's like, you know, can you separate the art from the artist? And Roman Polanski certainly is is a name that's brought up a lot in these conversations. Woody Allen nowadays, I mean, just I feel like it just keeps coming. You know, uh, Kevin Spacey and Mel Gibson and Bill Cosby and uh, James Franco, and and it's like it's it's it becomes difficult to really start defining that line and and creating that delineation. And but I, and I think you look through history, and you're going to find the same with musicians and. Uh, you know, painters. And I, mean, I think there are bad people doing all sorts of bad things all through any sort of, of career and, you know, certainly in the arts. And it's just one of those things where, you know, I, I think that I I find a way to kind of separate the art from the artist, appreciate the project for what it is. And I think there's a big difference, though, with something like Twilight Zone, the movie, where you're actively watching something where the director was irresponsible and actually led to three deaths. Yeah, that's during the actual production of the film, as opposed to watching American Beauty, for example, and uh, and and knowing you know, decades later that this guy ended would be, up being a, yeah you know, right kind it, of a it was show. probably happening around that time. Yeah, but it wasn't part of the integral nature of the film, and so that's, that's interesting. Yeah, so there's there's that line. And so does it make it harder for me to want to go back and watch Twilight Zone, the movie again? At least his part. I mean, I love Joe Dante's. I love George Miller's. Those are, I think, the two you know best parts of that particular film. But it's, and it's one of those things. And then also it's like, well, do I also, just as a side note, there are things about John Landis that I also just don't like him as a person. You know, the Phoenix Film Festival, he came out. Uh, I think that he had done a documentary, and I can't remember what the documentary was called, but he was he was on tour doing, you know, thing for his documentary. And I was working the festival, and um, I knew the girl, or the woman, I should say, who was assigned to be kind of his handler and kind of get him from place to place. And talking to her after the fact, she talked about how he was a very gropey guy, and his hands were always on her and she was incredibly uncomfortable and didn't want to say anything because she didn't want to it was it's that situation it's like they put you into this situation where you don't want to say anything and cause a scene because this is this person and that's how they continue getting away with it and it just kind of made me really disgusted about him as a person in general and so i try to think about him as little as possible does it mean i'm not going to enjoy the blues brothers no i love this movie same with a number of his films and so it just it puts you into that mental space though yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, the The fact that, you know, we've covered as many films as we have uh, without having more of that conversation is a sign of how, you know, easily history does its thing. And um, yeah. but but I don't think we're in a hurry to talk about the Twilight Zone. So that's or, or really any other. I mean, if you look at his list and maybe it's just you were this is hitting because we're like, oh, we, we haven't really, you know, we've kind of run the gamut of the films of his we want to talk about. We haven't done Animal House. If there was any interest in in having a conversation about Animal House, that's that's the only other one that has a bit of uh, has enough sort of cultural uh, weight to it that might be worth having a conversation about. It's been a lot of years since I've seen it. And I remember some funny bits. I've never really liked it. uh, So I don't know if I would have too much inclination to discuss it. You know, Into the Night is an interesting film. Spies Like Us, yeah, that's a funny film. Yep. Uh, everything that he's done. I mean, I, I feel like if there was something we were going to do, it would be if we jump back into the Beverly Hills Cop series and ended up kind of just finishing all those films and end up t- covering Beverly Hills Cop 3. But that would be accidental. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he would, he right. would be. We wouldn't be doing yeah, it because secondary. Of it. Right. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> all right, all right. Enough about <laughs> enough about that. Yes, we're here to talk about the Blues Brothers. Um, where did you did you first like in in the late seventies, uh, nineteen seventy eight? 
you know, this is when we had Saturday Night Live and we mm-hmm. had um, uh, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd create these characters, Jake and, and Elwood Blues, as a sketch on Saturday Night Live. Were you, uh, was Saturday Night Live a thing for you at this point in time? Was the film first for you? Did you ever look at the sketches? Where, where how did you come to this? This Well, I, yeah, I'm an, I am definitely an SNL fan, but you got to remember in 19, in the late seventies, like we were very young. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. what I have to, uh, to thank for my introduction to the Blues Brothers, I thought they were a band first for a lot of years because my mother had, briefcase full of blues and that and uh that was in the rotation with like canned heat and you know uh sam and dave like it this was um this was just part of the soundtrack of my early youth uh was listening to this stuff and so i think it was when um you know 1980 my mom got the the uh, made in america album and I had that. I carried that with me as long as I had a, a record player. Um, I had stolen that from her. And so they were musicians first. It was it was when I started watching SNL and finally was able to go back and, and look at some of the early clips to see King B and, you know, the original B's sketch that started it all that that I realized, oh, my God, these guys <laughs> like I, I I had no idea. I had no idea. I didn't I don't think I even knew that the Blues Brothers were Belushi and Aykroyd for a lot of years. Right. <laughs> like not not at all. What about you? Uh, I mean, largely the same. And just and just to clarify, you know, over in our uh, member chat, our live chat, Ray pointed out they weren't created for a sketch. They were billed as the legitimate musical act on the show. That is true and not true. They, yeah. It was a musical. It was a musical sketch is the way that yes. they actually bill it. So it was a sketch with these two guys as the but actually as the musical guest. So I mean it was a whole kind of thing where they were these two regulars on on SNL created these characters to do this musical uh, thing. So it's it's actually pretty interesting kind of the the creation of Well, them. and because because the the B outfit had already been used for other sketches and that was the gag, right? That they were coming out and that somehow these characters also were musicians. That was my kind of memory of it. Like that was the funny bit. Yeah. Yeah. The Killer Bee sketch was uh, was a non-musical sketch. Yeah. uh, Originally. Right. This was the funny bit from Lauren Michaels, who says the only note we got about from the network on our very first show was cut the bees. And so I made sure to put them in on the next show. So the Killer Bees were actually (laughs) the first recurring characters on SNL. Yeah. So they made it. They made it into the show. And that's what I think makes the musical transition so good. It's just funny. It's absurdist. Yeah. So for me, I um like I, I was not tuned into SNL until much later in in uh, life, like high school probably is when I first kind of found it and and connected with it. And yeah. so I completely missed it. I had a buddy, though, who was very into this movie. And I remember him like always wanting to put it on. And so I, I saw bits and pieces of it over the years because of him. And it probably also wasn't until high school that I ended up finally watching it. And, and you know, because, you know, you're hanging out with theater kids and you're watching stuff like this all the time. And and just really kind of clicking with the characters. And I just I, I loved the the music and the kind of the comedy of it and just the the over-the-top nonsense that we have throughout, especially as the car chases just kind of get, keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. and so it was a it's it's just a fun movie and so it's kind of been in my life uh off and on f- through through my youth but really since high school and uh I, and and so i never really uh like i never had the blues brothers al- albums uh you know like I, I think they've now released five live albums plus a couple studio albums things like that and uh, other than the soundtrack to this, I, I've like never listened to their stuff. But I mean, they legit would would actually do some great stuff. And I think it, what makes this work, and this is what I think is interesting when it comes to SNL sketches that survive outside of Saturday Night Live, is that you really get a sense that Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi had a uh, an incredible fondness and and connection and desire to like kind of dig deep into the, all of this fantastic blues music and the history of it. And you just get a sense, like, especially watching this film, how 
how much they they really pay homage to all of these people who are part of that history. And that's what I think is um, exciting about uh, about what they do here. The, these two guys could have, with just a, a you know slight breeze from the East, could very easily have ended up starting as a band and never been on Saturday Night Live, right? I mean, I get the sense that they love the music so much that it, it while it ended up as an avocation, it could very much have been their vocation. They're good at it. They're entertaining. The music is great. Uh, they clearly have like they built a band with legit skill, right? The the band is is uh, full of exceptional uh, musicians. And uh, so I, I think, um, you know, the fact that that is central to the movie is what makes the movie different from other SNL adapted, like sketch adapted films, right? It has it, it has at its core more substance to it than some of these other films that that have have taken off. Uh, in, and I think that's what makes the Blues Brothers uh, more of a lasting title in, in the canon. It's the it's the one that I think about that has the most obviously, you know, to me, staying power. OK, so we're going to do a quick quiz for you right now. You ready? Oh, God, no. What What are you going to do? SNL sketches that turned into films. Ugh. First of all, how many How many do you think there are? Oh, I, I think there are um, probably a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, are there more than 10? There are. Or 12? 50? No, it's, it's actually 72? 11. 11. It's a, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Tell me this is you, this is the first yeah. one. Okay, so so name as many as you can. So you got the Blues Brothers. Okay, all right. So yeah, it, it does it count if I give you characters? If I can't think of sure, that, I'll, yes, title? I'll help you out because I know Stuart Smalley. Uh, Al, Al Franken yes. got a movie, right? Stuart saves yeah. his family. Correct. Harold Ramis uh, did that one, and we I think we we talked a little bit about it. Um, okay, so Stuart, what'd you say? Stuart Stuart saves his family. Has a family. Stuart saves his family. All right. Yes. Sequels are on this list too. Okay. Did Aykroyd get any other? Uh... <laughs> yes. <laughs> he did. He did. Yes. Well, let's see. So Ghostbusters was not an SNL thing. No, um, no, no, no. Oh, dear. So Aykroyd got one. But what was the character? Jane Curtin was also in the, in the oh, movie. Oh, Coneheads. Coneheads, yes. <laughs> Coneheads, okay. <laughs> um, well, I know, um, so Wayne's World obviously was one, right? That was the That's that was right. a sketch. And, and so that would be two. Yeah, Wayne's World okay. 2, and I'll also give you Blues Brothers 2000. You haven't said it, but I'll give it to you. Blues, well, I, all right. So I'm Blues Brothers, Wayne's World, Coneheads, Stuart Saves His Family. So you're at six, so you got five more. Plus yes. six. Okay. Oh, MacGruber. MacGruber, yes. That's it. But see, I feel like I missed a bunch. Well, you did. Um, and MacGruber's the most recent one. That was 2010. So yeah. it has been 12 years since we've had one. Hmm. Okay. Can, do can, do you feel like at this point I could get a hint? Can I call, can I phone a friend? <laughs> and is that friend you? Yes. Um, there's one involving two guys dancing. Oh, um, was that uh, was that a, a Will Ferrell? Um, Will Ferrell with their heads. Yes. yes. Oh, ro- uh, night at the Roxbury. Night, night at, at the, the Roxbury. Roxbury. There you oh. go. Okay. Armpits. <sighs> Oh, Mary Catherine Gallagher, uh, uh, Molly Shannon's character. What was that? Uh, I, it, what, what does she that? say? She's what is so she funny. Uh, she gets down on her knee and she says, uh, oh, my God, what is her line? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, begins uh, oh, with an uh, superstar. Oh, superstar. Superstar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dare to okay. dream. That is right. We've got Tim, Tim Meadows. <gasps> I didn't see this one. This was his uh, ladies' man character, yes, right? That, what that's it what called? it's called, the ladies' man. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, outstanding. All right. So, one, where are the, we now? The only one that you're missing is the biggest flop of all of the SNL uh, films that had okay. come out. Um, okay. It it involves. A I character. would have said that was ladies' man already. So just uh, know that that uh, right. I now have no idea where the bar is. Oh no no, the, the ladies' man was definitely not at the bottom. So, okay. um, this is a very androgynous character. Oh God, 
This yes. was Julia Sweeney's thing, right? Uh, it's yeah. um, Pat. It's Pat. It's Pat. Exactly. Oh, That's, God, that was yeah. not good. It was just not, I mean, not a good or kind idea. It was, it's a weird character. Just a weird character. Yeah. yeah. So that there are 11 films. Um, I said It's Pat was the lowest grossing of the bunch. It cost $8 million to make. Only made not even $61,000. Wow. Wow. <laughs> complete, complete failure. Which one would you say is the highest grossing? Then this is not adjusted for inflation, by the way. Well, I would have said Wayne's World. And you'd be right. That oh, one did, that one did the best. The second film uh, did the best. The first film was second to the Blues Brothers. Both yeah. of those crossed the 100, th- 100 million mark uh, worldwide. None of the other films have. In fact, the, the highest after that was Wayne's World 2, uh, just over 48 million. So it's interesting that um, they haven't found anything since the first two films of 11 that have actually been able to kind of connect with uh, with people as much as the Blues Brothers and uh, Wayne and Garth. Are you watching any SNL now? I'm not. I haven't watched mm. it for a while. I feel like um, 19, let's see, when was the, like, like the mid-90s SNL? Had they had the same sort of uh, uh, intention at SNL, they would have made Stefan a movie. Do you know Stefan, the the hater character? Yes. Which is fantastic on Weekend Update. But I feel like there are people who were at at SNL in the 90s who would have advocated for making Stefan a film. And I'm so relieved they didn't because that's a rough sailing. Yeah, I... But I don't I can't I'm trying to think of other SNL gags right now that would make a transition to a film. I can't. I can't think it, it's a trick. I mean, and that's the challenge. And I think, you know, it's it's hard enough to come up with with characters that can really stand the test of time just on the show. But then yeah. to make a character who can not only stand the test of time as a recurring character on the show, but can also step out of that to become a character that can sustain an entire film and really kind of carry it to, you know, yeah. one or maybe even two films. And so I think that uh, with the Blues Brothers, I think absolutely if it hadn't been for Belushi's death just a couple years after the release of this, I think it likely would have had a sequel much earlier than Blues Brothers 2000 um, that would have allowed for them to kind of continue because it was such a big uh, success at the time. MacGruber is another one of those interesting ones to me, though. Like, it did not do well, but it's all, it's got a show right now. <laughs> like, it's a, a film that, or a property that, that seems to have longer legs than I would have expected. That speaks a lot to just kind of that, the Will Forte, kind of that goofiness of the character. Yeah. Cause I think there's something that, I don't know, I guess, I guess there is something about that that just seems like it has some potential. And so, I mean, MacGruber didn't make a ton of money at the box office, but if any right. of them feel like there's a little bit more of kind of a cult following, it does seem like that one might, may have. Uh, have something you know yeah right so. okay all right well that was an interesting quiz i have to tell you i feel like i did better than uh, i would have expected well you know one day when we decide to do the snl series and we cover all the rest of these films <laughs> when, can't, that can't wait for that it's pat conversation <laughs> yeah. oh my oh. Uh, okay. anyway so blues brothers back to the movie yeah. yeah back to this film so uh you know this was a film that um they they wanted to get made um, pretty quickly because it, it was so successful, but I guess it was um, one of those things where um, Belushi was this big star because of Animal House, and there was a bidding war to actually make this movie, and Universal and Paramount both were bidding on it. Universal ends up winning the bid, and um, they they want to make the movie for $12 million. John Landis was on board, and uh, because he had worked with Belushi in Animal House as the director there, he wanted $20 million to make it. The script, though, was a little bit of an issue. Dan Aykroyd was tasked to write the script. He had never written a screenplay before, and he talks about this on The Making Of. And so uh, he hadn't even looked at a script. And so he decided he was going to just write the script, and it just becomes this huge thing. It goes into... The, you know, the backstories of the characters, how they got the band initially, all this sort of stuff. It was a 324-page script that he put together, three <laughs> times the length that it, the script should have been. It wasn't even in 
in proper script format. It was just very loose. And so, and actually as part of the joke of turning a script in that was so big, he actually put the, the yellow pages, um, the binding, the, the cover of it on it when he turned his script in just to kind of make fun of it. And so <laughs> that was a big thing. They ended up having John Landis uh, tasked to actually take what Ackroyd had done, condense it into something that was workable. And so that's, hence, you got the credit of both of those two at the top of the film for for writing this. They didn't write it together, but that was kind of the process. But I don't know. I always find that Dan Ackroyd seems like, I, I guess I think of him as the person who really has that connection to kind of the, the R&B background with the film and these characters and everything. And so I, I can't help but feel like he was really the one pushing to have James Brown and Cab Calloway and Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles and all these people uh, pop up in the film because of his passion for for it. And um, I, I don't know how much of that was actually in the script or if that's something that he and Landis really kind of talked about. But like bringing those people on to play little bit parts throughout the film, I, I think gives it so much interesting uh, vibe. Uh, I mean, what do you think of having all these musical stars popping up in such kind of small parts? Well, I'm curious how many of them did you like? Do you have a memory of how many of them you could pick out? Well, I, it was one of those things that obviously changed with time. Like initially yeah. when I saw this, I don't know how many people I was recognizing. Um, and so as I as I grew up and kind of more familiar with this stuff, you start getting a sense. And I mean, I may not have right away known who Cab Calloway was, but once that curtain opens late in the film and, he, yeah, and every, everything's Moocher. changed and he does Minnie the Moocher, I'm like, oh, this is that oh, guy who yeah. sings that song, like that whole sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think uh, I, James Brown was, uh, you know, as Cleophus James is <laughs> fantastic, <laughs> is irreverent. Uh, Ray Charles, obviously, was a big one. Aretha Franklin. Those are the big four. James Brown, Cab Calloway, Ray Charles, and Aretha Franklin that that I uh, I feel like I, I would have gotten pretty early. But the others, you know, and it was as I started exploring more kind of blues music that I start, you know, catching up with folks like John Lee Hooker, um, you know, and and um, you know, some of the rest of the band that came from uh, SNL. And then you start falling in love with movies and you get these nods to like Frank Oz. What is Frank Oz doing in this movie? <laughs> right, <laughs> Which what? is just yeah. fantastic. Frank um, Oz, Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And Steven Spielberg, right, gets mm -hmm. gets drawn away uh, as the Cook County uh, assessor. Uh, Twiggy, uh, it was another one that I didn't, I don't feel like I discovered until later, but uh, she's definitely a, a face that I immediately recognized again this time. Like I couldn't, I I can't believe she's still in here. It, it's a real who's who of these people. Like every single uh, guy, even Mr. T shows up in this movie. Um as a, as a guy on the street, uh, but it's still uh, fun to to peek for or peek out for all these faces. Paul Rubens, don't forget Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens, as the, right. the waiter. Yeah. And uh, as it happens, I was watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the the film with my son, and uh, we watched these back to back. Uh, and so it was <laughs> super fun to see Paul Rubens um, show up there. So little, oh. he's so little. Oh, and know. you know the little boy who's stealing the guitar in Ray Charles's shop? Yeah. Argyle from Die Hard. <gasps> oh my <laughs> goodness! I was like, "Why does that kid Devereaux look vaguely White. familiar?" Yes. Oh yes. wow! That's that awesome. uh, completely surprised me yeah. when I when I was looking him up. I'm like, "Oh, that's why he's so familiar." Yeah. Oh my gosh! So good. James so Avery shows up. Um, uh, Joe Walsh. Got to say, Joe Walsh was in there as an inmate early on. Um, yeah, but we haven't said Carrie Fisher, and that's probably who I yes. most connected with initially, just because um, you're right. She she had been so much a part of my life as Princess Leia, and so that was just you know it was really kind of fun to see her in this part that I as a kid I was like I never quite understood. I'm like why is it what is going on with her character? It's such a well, it's and this speaks also to the the writing of the times that that the way that her character is treated in the film it's very uh, misogynist. It's very sadly just of its time. It still is uh, funny, like watching her, you know, go through <laughs> from insane weapon to insane weapon to insane weapon, trying to take out these two brothers. Yeah. Um, it's it's not until we have that conversation uh, between her and uh, Jake late in the film, and you're really like, God, they're just. They just treat women 
poorly. And oh, the 80s. Ugh. Yeah. You know, I I think that's right. And I think if anything, you know, I was I mentioned that we were doing the show uh, last week on I, I think on Saturday matinee and, and Chrissy uh, had responded with a with kind of a scrunchy face nod. And I, I was like, wait, wait a minute. Why is this movie one that isn't aging? Well, I, I couldn't for the life of me, I couldn't remember. And that is just such a, a gift of ignorance of perspectives. Right. Like watching this again, the Carrie Fisher line is is for me the the troublesome line not because of the comedy in the setup but because of the the way you know he treats her at at the end i know they're going for the thoughtless joke right and i i know what i i can feel what they were going for but it just it just doesn't play it just doesn't play and i think that the punchline does not match the setup of the joke of Carrie Fisher as the as the scorned ex. Um, I, I just felt like it was it, it was rushed. It was kind of shoehorned in and and didn't make a lot of sense. And every time we went back to Carrie Fisher, I thought, why why is she here? Like in hindsight, why do we even have her written into the movie? It's such a small part overall of their of their kind of cannonball run esque journey that. Uh, that I just didn't, I did, I find I didn't need it. Yeah. It, it, well, it just, it, I, I feel like just like all these other faces, I thought it was probably fun for them to get Carrie Fisher in here because she was yeah. so big. You know, I mean, uh, this is the same year that Empire Strikes Back comes out. And so it makes sense to kind of have, oh, this is, this will be great having her show up in this, in this film this way. It just, it does end up feeling a little, um, unfortunate the way that they put it together and it you know it speaks to largely again just how women were treated how carrie fisher was treated in in you know uh, even by the time you get to return of the jedi it's just like yeah do we have to be Gross. going through this again and so it's yeah. it's frustrating and then that paired with thinking about john landis again i'm like oh god these yeah. things that i don't want to be thinking about with this film it's just ugh, so annoying i know but. i know can, can I ask a, a side sideline question? Because this yeah. one, this does bring up the the fact that that Carrie Fisher works at the uh, at Curl Up and Die, mm. uh, which I think is a fantastic name for a um, uh, you know for a beauty uh, stylist, salon. a beauty salon. Yeah. Uh, but that's not something you get in the theatrical cut. I don't correct. believe. What correct. did you What did you watch? Uh, which version did you watch? And do you have a stance on theatrical versus um, the extended? Yeah, I watched the extended this time. It was the first time that I had watched it. Um, you know, I've had the the movie for uh forever, but I it was not one because it wasn't a director's cut. Uh, you know, I often kind of like, well, they're just throwing stuff in there just to, you know, make it a selling point to get people to get it again or whatever. And so I I sometimes just don't don't worry too much about jumping into the extended editions of things. I was curious about it since I had never seen it, and I figured, well, I'll just watch it this time and see what's different. And it's pretty easy to tell what's different because the film, um, it, it wasn't treated the same, and so it's it's a pretty apparent difference when they jump from uh, from the what we had always had to kind of those those deleted or extended scenes, and um, and so. That largely, I mean, there are a couple scenes that actually take place. One is you find out that she does work at this, the curl up and die, uh, beauty salon, which is a fantastic name. If, if anything was added back in, it would have been great to just have that just to get that yeah, shopping. Right. It's just a perfect name for a beauty salon. Um, the other one that, that really is kind of a, an actual scene is you actually see, Elwood at work. He goes into a place where he works and it looks like he's dealing with epoxy, like the canned epoxy stuff that you see him use later when he, um, you know, sprays the, the pedals in the cars <laughs> and stuff right. like that. And, and so there's, uh, so, he, you know, he works at a place there and, but he quits his job because he's going to, as he tells his boss, he's going to become a priest. And I mean, at, in the process, he's taking some of these cans with him. It's an odd little scene. It doesn't really do anything for the film um, because all, all it really does is set up how he got those cans that he uses later. Eh, it, it's not that necessary. Other than that, it's just really extended kind of versions of, of a lot of the musical numbers. And so, it really wasn't that, um, you know, revelatory to watch this. I mean, it's nice having the longer musical numbers, but I think that the the regular cut is probably what I would watch from this point moving forward. So I had both, and I started um, 
I started watching, I think, I, I don't know if I started watching uh, just sort of indiscriminately because I have it on my my sort of home media server. So I just press play uh, and I wouldn't even have been able to tell you the differences anymore. I think I've watched the extended version just by default more. And so I actually I, I actually had to go back and look for the differences just to realize which version I'd been watching. I don't even remember. I can't. I can't imagine cutting some of those things for a theatrical cut anymore. So, you know, weird uh, experience with this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I mean, it is, it is you know, from what I could tell, it's not like, you know, director approved or anything that, that uh, John Landis had wanted to be the original release. I mean, I know he did have a longer cut and had to cut it down in order to kind of fit the demands of, of the studio and all that sort of stuff. But it's not like he had been fighting and it's not like, you know, you know, people were clamoring for this cut yeah, to get yeah. released or anything. And I, and I don't know how much of a hand he had in adding all the footage um, back in. But it just, I mean, it feels fine. It's, it doesn't feel off by having this stuff in it's not like you're watching deleted scenes that you're like eh. so. well and and you know it's a music movie and one thing we do get in this movie is longer cuts uh, of the music yeah right. and that's and, that's a good thing for a music movie it is although like watching the watching it i'm like <laughs> i was like is it is it longer because like i i guess i just never thought of the songs as having been cut and so mm -hmm. when you watch the longer version I, I guess it was a surprise that i'm like oh i didn't even realize that like there was there was stuff missing here it just didn't it you know it didn't um i i never felt like the songs had been hacked you know yeah yeah so well. But I mean, yeah, there's a lot of great music in the movie, and I, I think the movie works well. I mean, in either way you want to watch it, I think the movie's going to work. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. So let's let's talk about some of the music. Do you have any particular favorites? I mean, we've already mentioned a lot of the the performers that are singing. Not to mention the Blues Brothers that perform a number yeah. of times throughout the film. Um, <laughs> what about you know the? I, I always get a laugh out of them performing the theme to Rawhide. One of the funniest bits in the movie when they end up in the yes. Western bar. We have two kinds of music here. We have country and we have Western. And Western. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, I am a big fan of, well, I, I like the whole thing, right? So, uh, but, it, so it's hard to pick one, uh, but Shake a Tail Feather with Ray Charles, just because we get the, the Ray Charles oh, performance, yeah. I think is so, so fun. Uh, theme from Rawhide, for sure. Minnie the Moocher is, is way at the top, but I'm a longtime fan of Cab Calloway. Uh, the one that always stands out for me, and I will sing, every time I watch this movie, I'll sing this song in my head for days, is Sweet Home Chicago. Um, I just, I just love it. It's an anthem of this movie for me. And, uh, that is the first you say, Sweet Home Chicago, the first thing I think is Blues Brothers. Interesting. Uh, I, I mean, definitely I, I think that, but also Aretha Franklin's Think. I mean, that song, I just feel is just an iconic element from this film. Like that and Shake a Tail Feather, for me, are the two, the two main standouts of the movie for me. Like those mm -hmm. songs come on and I just stop everything that I'm doing and just kind of just sit there and sing along because I think those two songs are just so fantastic. I just think Sweet Home Chicago, it's a it's also an anthem for Chicago. And I just like we don't have a song, Portland. Like there's no Portland song. What's a <laughs> Portland song? Nothing. There's no Portland song. So I just I, I, I find that song sticks out to me because I'm a little bit jealous. That we well, have and no that's the, that I mean, geez, Chicago already had a song from um, uh, Robin and the Seven Hoods. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What yeah, was that? Song? Chicago I, like, has too many songs. Is what we're saying. Yeah, that toddle in town, right? Yeah. So yeah, we spread the love. Spread the love. Maybe yeah, maybe you need to get uh, get some stuff. What's Phoenix's song? Like, does Phoenix have an anthem? No. <laughs> Nothing. Who was the, um, uh, was it Suff John Stevens who was doing those state albums for a while? I think his initial intention was to do one for every state before he realized how long it was going to take him. And, 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 he, and he said, what slow. the hell am I going to do with Oregon? <laughs> <laughs> I guess well, the project is over. Exactly. Although I will say it was some of the songs that he came up with, with some of the states. I'm like, well, he came up with more than I thought he would for some of these places, you know, it's, <laughs> Such a funny. I mean, uh, what did he do? He did Illinois. Was it only? Maybe it was only Illinois. Uh, again, <laughs> freaking Illinois. Like, why is Illinois getting really? all this love? Yeah. yeah oh, he did Michigan also. Illinois and Michigan. So he he managed. 
<laughs> and, then, so and then he gave up on, on that thing. So I'm not All exactly right. sure why Chicago gets so much love. But yeah, I mean, you know, there needs to, oh, you know, he has a song on that album. Go Chicago, go, yeah. So there's another mm. one. Yeah, yeah so, I don't care yeah. for it. Yeah, I don't care for it. Uh, but anyway, yeah, great, great songs. And yes, you're right. I mean, the Blues Brothers, there's a reason that I think that they ended up lasting. And it's because these guys really did perform these great songs. And you and you hear like Sweet Home Chicago or, I mean, Jailhouse Rock at the end. Even them singing like She Caught the Katie at the beginning. We don't yeah. see them performing it, but they're singing it. It's like, like I mean, they, they do great performances and they just have a sound that works incredibly well. And so that's, I think, why that stuff um, stands out and, and makes makes the characters last as long as they have. So, okay, so that's the uh, that that's the music. I think we have reached the part of the show where we have to broach the topic of Nazis. <laughs> I was going to say car chases, but sure. <laughs> what did you think of the American Socialist White People's Party? <laughs> remember I, <sighs> remember when Nazis in film were a joke? <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's it's very funny going back and revisiting this and and hitting those things where it's like, oh, yeah, this is Ugh. something that we have to go through again. And, you know, I I have such a fondness for Henry Gibson as an actor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I hit this part. I'm like, oh, God, I got to have Henry Gibson as the little Nazi party leader. And uh, I mean, I mean, obviously, it's designed to be something where the the you know, the the characters in the film, the filmmakers clearly have issues with this group. That I mean, it it started in 1959, dissolved in 1983, so it hadn't uh, lasted much longer after this movie. And it was probably because of stuff like this, where people were just like, "We're tired of this. Just get, just end it already." And um, but still, just seeing them in the film, I'm just like, "Oh, this was a thing. How ridiculous yeah. is that?" It was a thing. Yeah, uh, I didn't care for it. It was a joke uh it, it was jo- i mean i not like i didn't care for it. i don't care i don't care i'm gonna say it right here andy i don't care for nazis like, right my, yeah. i'm gonna draw a line in the sand at nazis yeah, i think it was i did laugh i mean i laughed at the whole at, at the whole bit especially when they careen over the bridge and push all the nazis into the river um that's that's funny and a bit satisfying and so uh it's it, it's okay it's it's it, it's fine. It's funny. It's fine. You know, you do have to end up ending it, and this feels also of its time and uh, kind of from the mind of John Landis when you have to end it on a gay joke uh, as a yeah. way to further, uh, you know, put them down. It's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, th- there are a lot of <laughs> issues to be had with this, um, but you know, it it makes for funny in the film. It it works in context of what the story's doing, and you know, in context of just one more party chasing down those blues brothers, uh, you know, it, it's nice to kind of just throw that into the mix at the end. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, at the end, you've got, and again, speaking to car chases, it starts off with the car chase yes. uh, that goes through the mall, and and. If that car chase wasn't destructive enough, I mean, you're destroying the mall. You have uh, you're going under the uh, I don't know Chicago. It, it's a strange city where I feel like it's a city on top of a city. You've got these whole layers underneath where it just feels like there's all these roads. I don't fully understand it. I know they exploited it quite a bit in uh, the Dark Knight. Uh, it just it feels like such a strange place to have all these roads everywhere, and uh, but you have all the car the the police cruisers. At that point in the film, I love the bit when John Candy and and his uh, the cruiser that he's in crashes into the truck, and he's like, yeah. oh, "We're in a truck," <laughs> as he calls it in. But then there's the big car chase at the end, and I mean, this is after they get the money and they're trying to get to the county assessor's office uh, where Steven Spielberg works, and it's this massive, massive car chase. And this is, you know, I already talked about what John Landis wanted to spend on this film. We haven't even got to the point where we're talking about what he ended up spending in the making of this film because he, I mean, he just wanted car chase like bigger and bigger and bigger. And I mean, I think this still, how many vehicles did they end up destroying? It was over a hundred. I think you moved on way too fast from the mall trashing and i want mm. to talk about that some more okay because that mall in particular is the dixie square mall 
And it is one of the great examples of the of dead malls. It was only in operation for 12 years. And in 1978, it was it had been largely, uh, uh, um, you know, just open and they closed the mall like all the retail space was was closed up. And so they found this mall and said, we're going to do this thing in this mall. And they said, OK. And then the uh, uh, owners of the mall just left it. And so it sat there. Uh, for decades, just in a destroyed state. And for photographers, it became a central uh, destination in the spirit of urban exploration, taking incredible uh, photos of abandoned facilities around the planet. And uh, so when you search for the Dixie Square Mall uh, photos, you can find some incredibly dramatic photos of just urban sort of Anthropocene decay that uh, are uh, legend. Like this this place is a is a real cornerstone of, of that now. And I think I, there is a I, I think it's either gone now. In 2013, there were plans to uh, finally demolish it and, um, and and get rid of it, according to the Chicago Tribune. But I I actually I don't know if it's still there or not. It's always interesting when locations are used and abused and then just left yeah. to sit. You know, like, I mean, right. isn't that kind of the case at the Popeye Island where they just like, yeah, where this entire island is like the, still there. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's crazy that. Uh, yeah. That those sorts of things end up happening. Uh, final demolition of the Dixie Square Mall on February 12th. It's, it was gone in May of February or May of 2012. Dixie Square Mall is gone. OK. The So this was the movie that held the world record for the most cars destroyed in one film. It actually did get surpassed by a single car in the sequel they uh, i think they uh, very intentionally wanted to break the record and so they did it with just one more car when wow. they when they made the the sequel yeah interesting so there were um uh 104 cars destroyed in this film one more in the blues brothers 2000 no sorry uh, 103 in blues brothers 104 in blues brothers 2000 the record was broken in 2009 by gi joe the rise of cobra which destroyed 112 cars. <laughs> oh my God. So <laughs> that, it, that the Blues Brothers, G.I. Joe would be the one that takes the. Uh, <laughs> You'd think it would be like a Fast and Furious yeah, movie or something. Exactly. But those are, none of those cars are real. <laughs> they never leave the green, green screen stage. <laughs> exactly. Uh, one car that's also in this film that, uh, that, <laughs> pretty much gets destroyed it's the blues mobile which became quite a uh an iconic car uh, wh what would you say is would you say it's as iconic as the ghostbusters car probably not no it was it was just so the, the thing about the blues mobiles it, it, it was pretty generic at the time right just painting it black it was it became iconic when they strapped the giant speaker to well, it exactly and like if you see people nowadays like recreating it for you know Comic Cons it's and stuff always like got that. the speaker it's on it. All, exactly. It always has the speaker on top. And if you see it sitting, I mean, there's House of Blues, the restaurant that kind of yep. spun off of this whole thing. Um, they sometimes will have one of those sitting out in front, stuff like that. So, I mean, it's definitely a thing that people have kind of um, created just for, you know, the sake of that. But yeah, I, I, right. it probably would be Ghostbusters higher than this film. Although I think this is a pretty easy to spot one when you do see it. Yep. Agreed cool car yeah as far as the I, oh i have to talk about this i mean we're going to talk about the numbers and all that sort of stuff but i have to talk a little bit about the release plans for this film because it's <laughs> shocking not shocking 1980 we have to remember this is the era of 1980 which is uh you know part of our lifetime but it also you forget about how long ago it was and, and the mentality at the time when this film was uh, was put together for release, Belushi's uh, popularity had diminished a little bit. I mean, he you know between his uh, rise to fame with uh, Saturday Night Live and Animal House, he also did 1941 for Steven Spielberg, which wasn't received that well. So people were a little more hesitant about this film, and um, it, and the studio head at Universal. They invited, this is Lou Wasserman, head of Universal, invited John Landis to talk to Ted Mann, head of Mann Theaters, which was a chain at the time, and very big in the western half of the United States. Mann told John Landis that he is not going to book the theater in any predominantly white neighborhoods 
because this is what the quote is on Wikipedia. Not only did man not want black patrons going there to see the film, but he also surmised that white viewers were unlikely to see a film featuring older black musical stars. And so <laughs> they... Uh, they did not give it a big release at the time it came out because of that, which is, uh, again, just like you look at it now and the history of yeah. these people in this film. It's really shocking that like this was the mentality that they were going into with putting the plans together for the release of the film. Oh, God. So, so. yeah, yeah, it's rough. Yep. Yep. Okay, well, um, I guess that's it. So um, we will be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Duff Music. Oriel Novella and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at True Story FM. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy. Sequels and remakes. We've already mentioned Blues Brothers 2000, but we're not going to talk about it. Just that it exists. <laughs> just... Oh, come on. We have to talk about it. it. It's It was terrible. Did you see it in theaters? No. No. I did. No. I was working at the movie theater, so of course I was watching oh. everything that came out. It was just a it was a terrible, terrible movie. Why was it so why was it so terrible? Because I can tell you, not only did I not see it in theaters, I don't think I've seen it. Oh, interesting. Going back and trying to craft a story long after uh, Belushi had died, coming up with something that tried to fit in where, you know, he's using, I think Elwood is out of, uh, he finally gets released from prison after everything that happened in the first film, waiting for his brother. Uh, the warden tells him, your brother's dead. And um, and so he ends up with John, uh, John Goodman, um, with Joe Morton and a kid. And they kind of create this new Blues Brothers group. And I don't know, it was just a very similar sort of plot. I can't exactly remember the plot. It's just they were, they were trying to rehash doing the same sort of thing that they had already done with the first film. And it really just felt like a rehash. Like, let's get a whole bunch of other musicians in. I mean, they have all these great guests again. Aretha Franklin shows up again. James Brown shows up again. Um, you got Wilson Pickett. Uh, blues travelers in there i mean it's it's interesting to see kind of the the lineup that they got for this follow-up but it just it felt like we're just doing the same thing again and it just didn't feel like there was anything original um at all and it just it was i don't know i really didn't didn't care for it i mean i haven't seen it since it came out in 98 but i just remember going god why did they why did they bother so interesting wilson pickett erica baidu Blues Traveler, Blues Traveler, come on, John Popper, naughty little minx. Paul Schaefer, Paul Schaefer actually had a strong hand in in the um, the original, in the music uh, arrangement of the original. Right, right, right. B.B. King, Dr. John, Dr. John, oh. I mean, great, fantastic musical cast. Oh, no absolutely. I mean, way to discount the musical cast. And that's, I mean, if there's a reason to kind of check it out again, it's because they do have this great lineup of of the musicians again. Uh, the Louisiana Gator Boys are back. Uh, and so it's, I think that there's just, there's a lot of good music in it. It just, the story was just uh, really, really sad. It just does not, does yeah, not hold a candle to this one. Yeah. Uh, wow. Made it into the Guinness Book of World Records for biggest pileup. Yeah. Lots of cars. Yeah. So many cars. Well um, other stuff the Blues Brothers did. There was a book published right around the time of this one that was just a little bit. Uh, it was called Blues Brothers Private. And uh, John Belushi's wife had written it. And um, it just kind of about it was about the Blues Brothers, the universe in which they, they take place. And then there was also Blues Brothers video game <laughs> that came out. Um, you know, 11 years after the movie, 1991, um, I, you know, you're, it's basically, you're trying to get away from the police and get to the concert. So it's funny that it was, uh, big enough to, you know, that late end up doing a video game. 
I've, yeah, I've never even heard of the video game. And do we have, have you watched any of the playthrough or did you play it? Are you a big fan? No, I've never heard of it. I didn't know it existed either until I was researching this. Well, thank you, YouTube. Let's get right in there. Uh, <laughs> see if we can get a, a speed run through the Blues Brothers on SNES. I do. I have a complete, it takes 41 minutes to play through the whole thing. And the animation is uh, as you would expect. It is a Mario-like side-scroller. I think Elwood yeah. has no shirt on in this part. <laughs> I think <laughs> Probably it's so possible. Identify the difference? He is so muscular. Know, it's like, is there a... It, I think there's like a power-up that makes him a... Message, rips his shirt off. This is extraordinary. Oh this is gosh. essentially Mario Brothers, but with the Blues Brothers. It's not good. But I mean, to the to the point of Blues Brothers, you know, other things. I mean, yeah, there's plenty of music. I already mentioned, yeah. you know, they had uh, five live albums, two studio albums. Uh, I, both of those, the studio albums were done, uh, you know, other musicians. It was not uh, uh, when John Belushi was around. Right. I think he only was around for the two live albums, Briefcase Full of Blues and Made in America. Um, well, so, and the soundtrack to uh, the film, obviously. Well, and the, the soundtrack sound was, this, yeah. was actually yeah. technically a studio album. Sure, 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 sure. Um, so, but yeah, it's uh, you know that's that's kind of the realm of sequels and remakes. I don't, I don't know. Uh, Dan Aykroyd really kind of has seemed to fallen out of uh, just even doing film projects. So I can't imagine that at this point he's been contemplating any return to uh, to the you know, yeah. Blues Brothers again. Right. I think it probably is what it is. Yeah. I mean, did it win any awards? Does it? Is there excitement we should have for award season? You know, it it had two wins and one other nomination. Not a big award sort of film. One of the wins doesn't really count. It was the 2020 National Film Preservation Board. IMDb always lists this as an award win. It was added to the National Film Registry is what happened in oh. 2020. So technically, that means it had only one win. And that was uh, at the Motion Picture Sound Editors that won the Golden Reel Award for Best Sound Editing Sound Effects. And I can certainly see that. The, uh, the other nomination that it had was at the 1984 Turkish Film Critics Association <laughs> Awards, where it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. It ended up in fourth place. It was an interesting run of films because, I mean, 1984, it's a few years after it came out, but this is Turkey. The run of films that it had, it lost to being there, which was first place, The Marriage of Maria Braun, second place, and Gloria for third place. The other films after this in fourth place, there was Brubaker, Under Fire, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, The King of Comedy, Hardcore, and Still of the Night. A very kind of wow. like odd amalgam of films that the Turkish film critics um, nominated that year. Wow. That's, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, all right. Worth it. How about at the box office? You already outed that it performed very, very well as a, um, you know, in our conversation about the SNL yeah. adaptations. SNL films. And right. that I assume is good because it cost, what, $3 to make. <laughs> we went over. Yeah, as I said, there was that bidding war to get the film. Um, initially, Universal's, you know, they started at $12 million. Landis wanted $20 million with the unfinished script, with all of the car crashes and everything he wanted to do. Uh, it, the budget ended up being $27.5 million. So more than twice what Universal initially wanted to spend. That's $85.5 million in today's dollars. This actually landed the film as one of the most expensive comedies ever produced which i think is pretty interesting wow so many cars so many cars exactly the movie ended up releasing june 20th 1980 opposite brew baker and can't stop the music nothing released though could knock down the juggernaut in the number one spot for its sixth straight week the empire strikes back that's going to retain its number one spot for eight more weeks before finally getting knocked down by all things Smokey and the bandit 2 <laughs> <laughs> that's right uh, this movie went on to earn 57.2 million domestically and 58 million internationally, something which Landis has been keen to point out is showing that this movie to be the first American film to gross more movie over more money overseas than it did in the States. 
I have no idea if that's true. The 58 seems a little artificial just to beat that 57.2, but who am I to say? Regardless, assuming it's all copacetic, that means the movie earned 358.3 million total in today's dollars. That puts everyone in a good place, landing with an adjusted profit per finished minute of just over $2 million. $2 million. That's pretty good. You know, I'd take that on, on the list, minute. on our list of apps. That's pretty, that's yes. high. Indeed, indeed. I'm, uh, I think I'm on level, oh, geez, I don't know. But let me tell you, there is the only thing that I can find in this video game that is, <laughs> yeah, I'm still, I'm still watching. you even paying attention? You're like, no, this No, I don't game. give a, I don't gonna... care what you're doing right now. Um, <laughs> is, is there, I mean, he's in a dungeon right now. Uh, he does, in fact, eat what I think is a snail. Uh, that is laced with something and he uh that's when he rips his shirt off and becomes uh mega elwood and the only other thing that it seems appropriate to the film is that there are bees he has to knock down bees he also has to knock down like uber snails that are out to get him it's very strange dungeon very spiky i don't understand this game at all that's all i have to say about that uh what are you gonna do for letterboxd I've just always have loved this film. It's a five star and a heart film for me. It's, um, you know, even with all of the, you know, the issues that I have with it and the things that, that, you know, strike me funny, I think it's just one of those films that came at a point in my life where it's just so easy to just sit back and watch. Uh, and so yeah, it's five stars. You know what, Andy? I would, do you want to call my shot? Do you want to Babe Ruth it? No, you're five stars in the heart. I don't even yeah, have to. Yeah, you don't even have to. I'm five stars. <laughs> I do love this movie. I love this movie. Um, I, I I have a lot of t- fun with this movie, and I think it's possible to say that this video game, I'm on stage nine now, it actually makes the movie better. This is canon now. <laughs> this is canon. By the way, just to, just to circle all the way back to the beginning, the book about everything that happened on Twilight Zone is called Outrageous Conduct, Art, Ego, and the Twilight Zone Case by Stephen Farber and Mark Green. Nice callback. Nice callback. So, yeah, there uh-huh. you go. All right, everybody. Well, uh, we want to know what you thought about the Blues Brothers. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in a Discord community. We're going to be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Jake is now riding a dragon in the video <laughs> game. Jesus. Okay. They really expanded uh, I, that universe. Uh, I went, he's right, it's flying. It is a flying <laughs> dragon. Uh, I went, I, I, uh, well, you go first. You go first. Okay. What do you, I, yeah. uh, I landed on a four star by Dr. Frank M. Frank Imstein, Frank Imstein, I'm not exactly sure, four stars, had this to say, it would be an honor to be hunted and killed by Carrie Fisher. <laughs> what, bringing it back around what a weird thing. Carrie. What a weird flex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, I went, I decided to go down just to see what's at the what's at the bottom yeah what's at the what's bottom, at the of the bottom? and there's a lot of seriously this is the worst uh horrible uh, horrible movie but i like this one because this is not the only one that has this sentiment and i feel like it might be talking to us busy steph gives it a half star review and says a damn shame of a movie with a cast led by those white buffoons all of that and not an original song in sight none of this made any sense and most of it was annoying but at least i have something to talk to my dad about at christmas (laughs) 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 there are so many of these reviews at the bottom that are like reminds me of my dad thumbs down (laughs) oh i have a feeling that we're um you know we're Kind of the dad pool in this, yep. which is, yep. is probably probably true, but you know, yeah, it, it and, is what it uh, is. Here's here's one of truth: a movie about how black people can put on dozens of show stopping numbers and two white men will still be the leads. Right? It's the worst. I get mm. it. It's the worst. Perspective <laughs> is everything. Uh, I get it, but yeah, yeah, that's it. That's all I have to say. Okay. Thanks, Letterboxd. You're the best. 